Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra. And I'm Kanna. We're two professional women who are passionate about tackling racism and inequalities in life and work. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, change is happening. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join us with great tips from professionals on how to be a necessary rebel. Hello and welcome to season two of Necessary Rebels. I'm Kanna and today I'm going to be speaking to Labour councillor Janet Campbell. Janet was a young mother at 15 and she went on to be a foster carer for 14 years. In 2014, she joined the Labour Party and in 2018, she became a Labour councillor in Croydon. She's held a role as a Deputy Cabinet Minister and in June 2020, she became the Cabinet Minister for Families, Health and Social Care. Welcome, Janet. How have you been? I'm good, thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. So, Janet, you're you're not the typical politician that we're used to seeing, you know, um, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, you know, middle-aged white man. Um, what made you get into politics? The thing about politics is that it's for everyone. And until you sort of scratch the surface, you don't realise actually the potential of the vote. In other words, you don't realise the power you have in as, as a voice within politics. And I suppose the fact that we're not sitting around the table means that we're being excluded from decisions. That's a really good point. And in terms of like national politics, we know that there isn't good ethnic minority representation. So was there was there anything in particular that you wanted to kind of see or change? Yeah, being a foster carer, I could see that services were really quite poor. And also the, the pathway to services was poor. So, so as a foster carer, I, de- I dealt with mainly um, mother and babies and unaccompanied minors. And as you can imagine, there was m- mental health issues. There was, you know, uh, issues in regards to self, um, who am I, identity. So I didn't feel as though the services out there represented the needs of these young people that I had in my home. I had no no intention of going into politics, but it wasn't until I met a councillor who, who talked to me about foundational politics and encouraged me to join the Labour Party, which I did. Just from my own like lay perspective, I really didn't know much about kind of local versus national politics until like fairly recently. Can you tell us a bit about what a local councillor does and what it is it that you do? As a local councillor, and, and I believe politics really does happen at local level. Um, and, and, and it impacts people like me and you. So, so in other words, this is where um, you see the true impact of politics. As a local politician, I listen to people's needs and I try and convert that to a voice around the table. And that's not easy because the people sitting around the table, it depends upon their experience as to whether or not they're even going to understand what I'm talking about. And I suppose that brings me to another point is language. I I feel as though there's a different language that's spoken in the council versus what's in the community. So therefore the Mm. needs get interpreted differently. So so there's services, there's responding to residents' queries, and there's also a portfolio. So 
at the moment, I am cabinet member for families, health and social care. And that can mean anything. And as you can imagine, right now, health is quite, quite key. But that can mm, mean yeah. any, anything from autism right the way up to COVID, right the way up to care homes, you know, and, and it goes on. So anything about elderly people um, in Croydon, anything and everything comes my way. And have you kind of like faced kind of any challenges within kind of what you, you started in politics? Was it what you expected or what the things that kind of you, you thought, oh, actually, I didn't realise this would be here? I, I think there's been a great deal of educating that I've had to do. I think there's been a lot of misinterpretation of what culturally needs to happen in order for Croydon politics to look like the people they serve. So I think there is a need for people who wouldn't ordinarily walk into politics to simply come and and, and just take tiny steps to understand what's going on in the in the town hall because I found that now that I'm in, my voice has changed. When I was mm. out, I was very critical and I didn't understand what was going on. And, you know, even the Bible talks about, you know, knowledge being key for us to, um, to, to, to live a good life. You know, my people suffer for the lack of knowledge. And not, the, the knowledge of, of understanding of what's going on in the town hall has um, become apparent and I can see how there is a desperate need to understand the community that it serves. Hmm. And kind of in your uh, work in um, the families, health and social care, what kind of examples can you give of where the knowledge, there's a gap between the community and what, you know, the town hall are, are doing or saying? Well, I suppose knife crime could have been um, understood a little better. Knife crime was made a public health issue. And, you know, we had a paper and it did go to cabinet and full council. And it was agreed that, yes, knife crime was an issue. I mean, since then, COVID has happened and everything has stopped. But I just believe that if we was to pick apart knife crime, it would uncover a wealth of things. You know, it would it would uncover things that would kick off projects like never before. If we got them, the young men into the town hall, if we actually listen to them, because I'm not so mm. sure we've listened in the way that, that we could. I know there was, there's been several um, projects being done that, that, that proved that 90% of, of, of young people that committed um, knife crime were excluded from school. Wow. But if we were to ask ourselves, what, what have we done about it? I'm sure there's many projects. Um, you know, we've got some wonderful projects in schools and what have you. But there, there, if we were to re- truly understand why and how and do the work that is necessary, and I'm not faulting anybody at the, at the town hall, I'm 100% speaking about our ability to learn, okay, mm-hmm. and, and not, not do repetitive work in order to get to the end goal that is so desperately needed. If we could do some work or sit around a table and discuss the work that needs to be done and not just simply throw money at it, because I believe that the answer is within the community. You mm. know, uh, so if we had uh, had a voice that was a powerful voice, an active voice, an empowering voice, not just a voice, by the way, teams of voices, yeah, champions, mm. 
empower those young people who feel that, that, that they no longer belong to society and society no longer cares about them, where could we be? You know, and those are the type of questions that I think are not sitting in a portfolio, are simply, simply sitting in people's hearts. And there, there is nowhere for that to go. I'm really staggered that 90% of, of those kids were excluded from school and that there's clearly a, a big problem there where they need to be in school and safe. But what is stopping the council and the, the local governments from inviting people in and speaking to the community directly before they make a decision? Why don't they just go out to the young people and say, look, tell us what's going on with you before we decide what we're going to do about knife crime? So I, I believe these meetings are happening, but there's work to be done even before that happens. And that boils down to culture and language. The young people speak a different language. <laughs> Their parents yeah. speak another language. The council speaks another language. WhatsApp delivers a different type of social media to Facebook and so on and so forth. But but all of that has to somehow come together or we use our voluntary sector to get that message out a lot more clearer. So people are talking to people of the same culture in, in order to deliver the messages. So what we're seeing now with COVID, and this is, and this is another thing, COVID has shown us how to do this. So with, when, mm. you, when you see mutual aid groups and you see like the BME Forum or you see ARC calling a meeting and 400 people are turning up, you know that the community is hungry to hear that. So that, that means that these voluntary sector groups can actually test the waters to see what's going on in our community. And we could be led from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Or we could meet in the middle. You know, it's work that needs to be done. And I'm, I'm no um, great analyst, but as a mother, I can see that COVID drew the people together. So therefore, we were able to listen better and deliver better. I love that message, leading from the bottom up rather than from the top down. And actually, I think like if we look at even political representation, like because we're not very well represented in in the House of Commons, it is important to to have a voice somewhere and and for us to encourage each other and and actually sometimes bang down the doors because actually mm. as a a member of the public, I may not have a lot of kind of political weight but actually if, if a lot of us come together and start talking to our local representatives and local politicians then I think that we'd have um, more of a say so I think it it is about uh, and and if if we're being heard I think that's important whereas I think if doors are slammed in your face you give up and, and again that's about not totally understanding what the processes are yeah so I, I, I don't know how we get around this but I you know I've seen comments even on whatsapp where People to have totally misunderstood the process and therefore have come to the wrong conclusion. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of reluctant to sort of put in a message, well, actually, you've got that wrong, because you can see that, that because that person has said something that resonates with the rest of the community on, on, that, on that community group, it, you can see that you're, what, you're, what you're inciting is war <laughs> against mm -hmm. yourself, even though you know that what they're saying is incorrect. So it's, it's almost as if there is, you, ha you have to pick and choose your argument and the timing has to be precise. 
Yeah, that's difficult because I guess you've you've got the pressure of being in a public office, but then you've also got this passion for the community voice. So I guess, I mean, that must be quite hard to balance where you you have to kind of, you have to have solidarity with both sides, as it were. Um, so do you find there's a little bit of sometimes you've got to play the game to get far? And, and unfortunately, we do have to talk about the game. Uh, and when is it right to do something? When is it politically correct to do something? When isn't it? politically great and you asked me earlier on you know what were the challenges that's one of the challenges I'm a person that wears my heart on my sleeves and I tell it like it is and often sometimes as I said before you just simply have to choose your your battles because if you choose the wrong one it could be detrimental to the people who are looking for you to serve them you know so it's understanding why you went into politics in the first place and that's what drives me every day why am I here? You know, and I do, I do ask myself that every now and again. Can you give any particular examples of situations that you've felt torn, but actually you've, you've gone and said, look, this, this is the decision I'm making. This is what I'm going to stand by, regardless of the potential consequence. I've been quite um, balanced in, in, in my thinking because often when you see something being opposed, it's being opposed because actually that person is also a community person. If I feel something, I, I generally say it. I find some way to say it. You know, th- there's many a thing that's happened, I suppose, that would, I suppose, rock the boat in a sense, because it is politics. That's, that's, the, that's the nature of the game. But I have found my way of saying the things that I need to say so far. But there are times where it is better, it's better to wait <laughs> to say the things that you've got to say rather than say it in, 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 a, in the big auditorium. And in the line, as I said, you don't represent our national average politician. Um, We know that of all of our kind of um, ethnic minority MPs, there are 65 in total. But if there were the number that represent the diversity of the UK population, there should be 93 uh, members from ethnic minority backgrounds. And I was looking into this before our interview today and I I got really emotional because I didn't realise that before 2010, there were only two female MPs from any minority background, and that was Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler. And I thought, oh my God, this is so upsetting. And then the first women of Asian origin were elected in 2010, and there were three. And then in 2019, there seemed to be massive progress, and there are now 37 ethnic minority women in the House of Commons. What has your experience been of being a a black female politician? You know, the biggest lesson that I've learned is to be strong, be courageous, stand up for yourself um, and your beliefs and live your truth. Because I find that this is a really lonely walk. And I know that primarily because I am breaking through that glass ceiling. In in other words, I will be in many rooms where I am the only black woman. My peers didn't quite believe it when I finally told them that I became a counsellor. They didn't see that one coming, you know. And I when I turn around and say to them, well, you could become one too, they say, oh, no, 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 no. And when you ask why, they say things like, it's for old white men. It's for those people who sit in their ivory towers. 
they almost feel as if, as if I've crossed over and they don't understand that I'm actually the voice that they need around that table. So they haven't seen the full picture. They don't get it. I do feel it is my duty to get my people to get it so that they can understand what it is and walk into that town hall, hall and sometimes sit in meetings again and again and be the only black person and the only one who's qualified really to speak about experiences that, that people have never experienced in their lives. I would love to um, see a lot more people and, and see the, the 93, like you said, in, in, in Parliament, because I know that what that will mean then is balanced arguments. I do believe, though, that it is not done with malice. People truly believe what they're saying is what should actually happen. But the difference is, is that they haven't got the right people around that table. So what would you want your white colleagues to know? Like, what, what should they be supporting with? Should they be stepping down, like just resigning? Or, or what, what, what's the solution, really? Education. You know, I said earlier, and I, I think I'm, I'm, I want to take that back. It's not that I'm the only person qualified to say what I'm saying around the table. It's that I'm the only person who actually knew what to say around that table. The difference is, is that my white colleagues haven't done the work to understand the people that they're serving. And that really is a difference. So they need to be aware of all of the different cultural and yeah, I guess the differences in language you were talking about earlier and the experiences that people go through before they make decisions about those people. It's not only about awareness, it's about listening. I w- I'll tell you this story. Somebody was losing their job and they happened to be the only person of colour on that floor. And I was saying, do you know what that, that will look like? Because here is this person who has been, you know, a, a, an accolade to some people because she was quite senior and she was losing her job. And, you know, nobody understood how much that was going to break the hearts of those who held her, the black women, in other words, in that building, who held mm. her in high esteem. Nobody understood or, or they did understand once I said it, that actually her losing her job has caused a ripple in that black community to say, uh, you know, racist, oh, here we go again. You know, we've seen this before, that kind of thing. Now, that's the type of thing I think white people need to hear. They need to hear that when you see people climbing to the top, you know, offer them training, you know, offer them some sort of stability, you know, because actually, for that person to rise up in the way that they have, they're probably not going to have the same attributes as a white person because actually they've had to kick and scream and knock down doors in order to get there in the first place. Their journey is different to a white person's journey. And and, and that's just a fact. I, you know, I've got a lovely white friend, you know, to, 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 you know, but it's just a fact. I'm not trying to speak out of turn up about anything. It's a fact. Her journey is going to be different to a white person. So what we have to do is put those um th- that support in place in order to ensure that that person flies rather than flops and actually in my line of work as well I've been looking into it and um you know black and minority um people are more likely to be disciplined at work and less likely to get a promotion so there's definitely something where there's a very little support 
And like you said, you have to kick and scream to get where you are. And then there's a barrier and, and there isn't enough people who who are willing to to mentor you or to um, listen, like you say, or, or kind of to advocate for you in that space. I have no doubt in years to come, we will have the experience around us culturally in the same way that you said that there were only two black MPs versus the 37, I think you said, that are there now. I know we're growing you know, and so the experience will be there in the future. But once we're honest, it's about living our truth. Once we're honest about the journey that the, the, the two different journeys and the two different walks of life that these people have come from, then we can put in honest, adequate support in order for both of them to reach goals. Yeah, it's about making space for everyone, not saying there's, oh, there's only limited room. We can mm. make room for everyone, can't we? Of course we can, yeah. I think the other thing that I think people don't remember in politics, so many people in politics who reach, you know, leadership on a national level have been privately educated and have had a lot of um, privilege in their lives that has positioned them to be where they are. And a lot of people haven't had that experience as a child or as a young person growing up of having debating skills and leadership skills and speaking out in public and, you know, may, may have not been to university. There's, there's so many things that we don't even think about. A lot of our prime ministers have been to Eton right mm. so they've been to Eton and they were told you are all leaders you are all leaders that was drummed into them and then off they go and they become the next leaders because that's what they grew up with and that they were trained for it as opposed to the young black boy or or my children or more my foster children who were who are told that they need you know additional they have additional needs and and you know to sit at the back or to get out the classroom because they've been making noises because they're bored with the work that they've been given and and you know one of my children who who was um who had learning difficulties didn't know what they were finally got her tested once she got to um uni and guess what it, it, she's autistic you know it, it and, and this is a child that had been given detention after de- detention had failed many many exams you know but she made it to uni but what got her there it was it was that kicking and screaming and shouting and whatever, but now she's standing toe to toe with with with, with her peers. There is still mm. there's still work to be done. There's still work to be done. Has any point made you think actually I can't do this anymore? I just want to like give up because this is this is too frustrating. Is and and what kind of makes you kind of you know continue? I guess. Yeah, there's been several moments where I've just said, you know, this is enough. There's several stories, you know, decisions that they made or or you can see that w- what's right, but the majority has gone with something else. And, you know, fundamentally that, that actually the community could have done with this or that, you know, there's loads. But I, I suppose we're all politicians, so we know the, the rules. So, yeah. And, and, and what, what, what compels me to stay is the fact that um, I know that my children are watching me, not only my children. And when I remember when I say my children, I mean foster children as well. And in 14 years, there's been many. There are several women that are watching me. So I'm, I'm creating a pathway. And I, re- I realise that this isn't um, a job I would have chosen for myself, but I am here because I believe in purpose and I believe in um, living one's truth and, uh, and walking in, in, in destiny. And, and, and had I chose, chosen my job, it would be something that I'd be probably complacent in by now anyway. 
so yeah, I, I I love the fact that what I'm leaving is is, is probably legacy rather than a, a cop out job, <laughs> which is what I probably would have chosen. <laughs> yeah, I love that you are leaving a legacy. Yeah. I guess the final thing I wanted to to discuss with you was some some people just in the public uh, get disillusioned and disappointed with with politicians and their vote they don't feel goes anywhere. Um, there's actually a national organisation um, that started in 1996 called Operation Black Vote to address things like voter registration within the Black British and ethnic minority communities. They they focus on things like lobbying politicians, running mentoring schemes for people to get into politics, and inspiring like minority communities to engage with voting and public institutions. What would like your advice be to someone who doesn't vote or has just stopped believing in in politicians? I would I would ask them to speak to a councillor, try and try and get some sort of understanding of what goes on in the town hall, and also to understand the power of the vote, especially one where a community is voting together for good. If you truly, truly are disillusioned with politicians, then surely your job is to make sure that the right politicians are in there. Interview your candidates, tell them your dreams, wishes and see what they can do for you, you know, and in turn, learn from them. That's the only way we're going to be able to speak that same language. And, and that, that, that's probably my point. There needs to be the day where we're all communicating on one platform and understanding each other on the same level, rather than having a hierarchy or even having a language that's spoken in the town or like, a, like we began with and one that's in the community. That language needs to come together so that we can be greater people. I love that about interviewing your politicians. I will try that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, as I'm doing now. (laughs) Um, That all sounds like really good advice, actually. When we last spoke, um, you you were saying that sometimes we do need to do things unconventionally. So, for example, you're talking about it's not about going to church, it's about having the faith wherever you are. Do you think that makes you a rebel? I suppose the answer has to be yes, because <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not willing to play the game. And, and there are several games that are being played in order to get to, what, to people's goals. But the goal that I'm after is one that is wrapped up in purpose and wrapped up in legacy and wrapped up in my footprint on this earth. So as far as I'm concerned, whatever gets me to that goal before I die is what I would like to do, you know, what I would love to do and what I am doing, I suppose. Fantastic. Well, it's been really, really good to hear about your experiences and your advice to all of us um, to engage with politics. And it's also important to see diversity in politics and challenge the status quo, I guess, um, so that we, like you're saying, we should all be involved in those decisions about our lives. Um, So thank you so much for coming onto the show. (laughs) Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, (laughs) Janet. You can find Necessary Rebels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on Instagram at Necessary underscore Rebels underscore pod. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Necessary Rebels. This was an II Studios production. We'll see you for the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>